Let us now turn to Psalm 14, an inspired title. There says to the chief musician, a Psalm of David, Isaiah 64 in mind. Hear the words of the Lord here captured. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. And the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Since the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word may be a blessing to this day and into your lives. We turn now to the canons of Dort, the third and fourth main point of doctrine, the title. Article 3 is total inability. That's the title of this afternoon's message as well. There we read, Therefore all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. Dear beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, dear friends, family, visitors, is there anything that if it were given to you to do that others, perhaps even yourself, might think you unfit? Is there anything that upon consideration of it that others, or you yourself, would be simply unwilling to do? Is there anything, considering its complexity or your lack of training or experience, that you would consider yourself unable to do? In other words, when considering any one task, job, or idea, have you ever thought, I probably shouldn't do that, I am not going to do that, or I simply cannot do that? Well, what a sour thought against the indomitable human spirit, one might think. After all, are not tasks set always before us that, that in our evaluation of them, that in our taking them on, win or lose, actually we learn, we glean, we test, we triumph, we grow? Has not the Lord God set an entire creation before us, displaying his glory towards us to search for him in its complex wonder and nature, to have dominion over all of it? Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Was that not the earliest commands given to humanity upon their image-bearing creation? Yes, of course it was. Brothers and sisters, God calls you to have dominion over all things. Being made in his image has qualified humanity for the test, for the privilege, for the glory. Such lives were being lived by two of us, together in paradise. Of God's own design, all things were set before Adam and Eve. They had everything they needed to succeed. And you know the rest of the story. 
All things are still displayed before us today. And it's not as if the rules have changed. God still requires a perfect and meaningful relationship with his people. What has changed is our ability to respond. We see the perfect law of God displayed before us. We read it again this morning from Exodus 20. The second use of the law of God states its restraint upon our hearts. We know it, but we cannot meet it. We are unfit. Truthfully, we are unwilling. And actually, we are unable. The psalmist sings at verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Congregation, you cannot save yourself. We lack the tools, but we are not lost. Article 3 of the third and fourth main point of doctrine, dealing initially with human corruption, but also conversion to God and the way it occurs, brings us this title today, Total Inability. Psalm 14 shall be our foundation of the doctrine here professed, but also the answer that we need. We may find ourselves unfit, unwilling, and unable, but... Here's our theme. Jesus saves from the unfit, from the unwilling, and from the unable. Firstly, Jesus saves from the unfit. What is it to be fit for something? Well, what is it to be well-suited for something? Each one of us, in the callings that we keep, in the pursuits that we engage in, get to test these questions. You know, I remember attempting to try out for the volleyball team high school. It took me one practice to realize that I was unfit. I experienced an exhaustion there that was formerly not known to me. What was volleyball, I thought? I thought that there was a lot of standing around. My my serve actually wasn't that bad. The court was split up into six different parts. Surely I could take control of one of them. I think the coach saw me coming a mile away on that first practice. I tell you, I was unfit. Well, in the Garden of Eden, God expected and required obedience. Adam and Eve could, in fact, enjoy all of the blessings of the Lord their God, including his own presence even. They were told to tend and to keep. They were told to rest. God showed them how on day seven. And Eve, oh Eve, to quote Matthew Henry from his commentary on Genesis 2, 21 to 24, it's one of my favorite quotes from him. Eve was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Under God's good grace and gift, these two could love each other as they loved the Lord their God. As long as they existed in obedience, as long as they could obey, they were fit for the presence of God, but all that changed when they responded to God in disobedience. Article 3 of the third and fourth main point of doctrine begins this way, therefore all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any good, any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. These are hard words to have to consider. In them, if we could look through the eyes of God, looking at humanity, considering what they once were, even very good. Adam and Eve were very good. God looked at all of creation, and it was very good at the end of day six, Genesis 1.31. Knowing that, what they had, who they were to each other, and before their Lord and Savior, 
now having fallen. One can conceive God looking them now at them now upon in uh, disgust. Now you have to consider the goodness of Eden to get there. In a, in a fallen world, there are all kinds of reasons for humanity to make mistakes. We misinterpret each other as we misinterpret God. And in a cursed world, weeds grow. Childbearing hurts. Women suffer in weakness while men lord over them rather than love them as God intended. In searching for Matthew Henry's quote, I read this one as well. Yet man being made last of the creatures as the best and most excellent of all, Eve's being made after Adam and out of him puts an honor upon that sex as the glory of man, 1 Corinthians 11.7. Man is the head and she is the crown. It's beautiful. A crown to her husband who is the crown of visible creation. This part of our image is most lost in the fall and it's tragic. Humanity has turned away from God in every possible way. The psalmist laments at Psalm 14, 1, we begin, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The modern version of this statement comes in the form of a question. If God is real, prove it. So numb to his presence has this world become, it figures that it's on its own. From the theory of evolution to the disconnect between human rights and human life from conception to natural death, from the blur that has become the discussion on what makes us male and female, every conceivable doctrine found in God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant word, including those very words used to describe God's own word, are under attack. Because if you can destroy the doctrine, then you can forget about the God who gives it. They are corrupt. The psalmist continues at verse 1. Now I am no computer software engineer. I was a draftsman before the ministry, but I have had files go corrupt on me. There's no coming back from it. For years, my drafting software didn't have an autosave function. And then you get busy in the design. You'd be hours in, and then the power flickers, and the screen shuts off, and the computer is dead, and you restart, and you go to that file, and it won't open. Hours are lost. You have to start all over again. To be found corrupt, beloved, is to be truly lost. It is to be found unfit. And the proof is in the pudding. Corrupt trees can only produce corrupt fruit. The psalmist, the psalmist's lament continues. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Truly humanity finds themselves unfit. Original sin and the Sin and guilt within verify such. Perhaps many think otherwise, but in their pride, they're only proving God's case against them. Thankfully, though, Jesus saves from the unfit. Well, secondly, he also saves from the unwilling. Back to my volleyball tryouts. You guys know what a burpee is? You know what running lines are? Before that day, I had no idea what those things were. I knew how to drive anything, thanks to my father. I knew how to milk cows in the dark. I had a job with a night shift for milking cows. I was just beginning to get to know a little bit about a lot of different things. What possible good were burpees and running lines going to do for me? I was unwilling. Well, back to creation. 
The devil had just finished his conversation with Adam and Eve. They have consumed the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes are opened. They know they are naked. God calls on them. They hide. God finds them and calls them on their disobedience. And at Genesis 3, 12 and 13, we read, Then the man said, The woman whom you gave me, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. These two were unwilling to admit their failures before God. They were unwilling to take responsibility for their actions. They knew enough about good and evil to forget about the first and to employ the second. They could have said, Lord, we have sinned. We have come into a state that is unworthy before you. We do not deserve your grace or this place. Please forgive us. Instead, humanity is destined to learn about God's grace and mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, the fall of humanity is a tragic event, but it comes with a good promise. Article 3 of the third and fourth main point of doctrine continues with the fact that without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, we are not willing to return to God to reform our distorted nature or even dispose ourselves to such reform. The curse is now set down upon humanity. The effect of the curse, the effects of the curse are surely displayed before us in the following chapters of Genesis 4, 5, and 6. There we follow the heart of humanity and God notes their continued evil, which brings us to the flood narrative. And at Genesis 5, 6, 5 to 7, which we read this morning already, we take from verse 6. I'll just read 5, 6, and 7 again. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will not... I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. The psalmist captures the thought for us at verse 2 when he says, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Now long has the discussion on free will been a topic amongst we humans of those who hate God, the thought of not being able to make any kind of decision for or against God on their own is an invasive, is an invasion upon their supposed rights as an autonomous creature to do so. Now those of uh, now, of those who love God, we have gleaned from his word and we have seen in our hearts that would the promise of the Holy Spirit not be working in the hearts of humanity, invading perhaps our free will, that we would continue freely in our sins towards certain destruction. Because there's a willingness on the part of humanity to turn to God on its own. It just doesn't matter if the unrepentant won't admit it. Well, let us note as well that upon the completion of the flood narrative, that not much has changed in the heart of man. Yes, yes, the ark settles, the waters reside, the animals come out, Noah makes a sacrifice, the sign of the rainbow appears, sealing God's promise to never destroy all of creation by flood again, but redemption for God's people is not fulfilled. 
Not yet, at least. At Genesis 8, 20 to 21, we read, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. And here's what's important. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living creature I have done. After God reestablishes his covenant with humanity, that's Genesis 9, we read of Noah's failure and humanity's arrogance at the Tower of Babel. And the psalmist sings at verse 3, he who, sorry, Verse 3, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. This is what God sees when he looks down upon us. This is what he thinks. Or Sorry, what he thinks is another topic for our conclusion. But what he sees are lives that lead to death. He sees lives that are unfit for his glory. He sees lives that are unwilling to turn to him without divine intervention. Left to ourselves, beloved, we are unwilling. Thankfully, though, Jesus saves from the unwilling. Well, thirdly, he also saves from the unable. From the unable. One more volleyball story for you. We'll need to back up just a little from that first practice of which I spoke of so fondly earlier. In gym class, you get to taste all kinds of different sports. During the school season, certain weeks are set aside for different kinds of athletic work, from basketball to badminton, from long-distance running to square dancing even. We all had to do it. We all had to go through it. Some of us enjoyed some of it. Others enjoyed something else. Volleyball came and went. I didn't Hate it, I rather enjoyed it. Perhaps volleyball camp could help me out. Well, having done the work in school, that three-week period during the summer, you could, you could go to one of these camps. I thought it was for, you know, fellows like me who knew not much about the sport to gain some more knowledge about it, but it, it, it wasn't. After going to the phys ed teacher and asking about the camp, I was met with, you know, a smile and a wink and, and the suggestion that, you, Maybe, maybe I had better go find other things to do. These, these, do I sound bitter? I, I'm not. These camps were meant for gifted athletes to hone their craft. I, in his opinion, was unable, and it was his right to say that. He was the coach. Now back to the creation story one last time. We come now to after the judgment of God. Humanity has fallen. They tried to blame everyone else except themselves. Judgment has fallen, but not without hope. The devil is condemned to eat the dust of the earth for the rest of his life. This means that his relationship with humanity will always feel sketchy. Children, this is what enmity is. The Lord God put enmity between the serpent and the woman. This means that when evil is present, you'll always have that feeling that you're not quite up to something so good. We have a natural inclination to know what's good and evil. And of course, in that same discourse from Genesis 3.15, we have the promise of the woman's seed, that such a statement and promise is given to us before really any other sins occur as a gift, that we have been sinning ever since and in every way is a testament to our inability to turn back to God on our own. 
Then judgment on the woman takes place, then judgment on the man, and then at Genesis 3, 22 to 24, we read, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. On this we can see that humanity is no longer able is quite unable to exist in the graces of that garden in which he was placed to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But note the grace present also, beloved. The Lord God does not wish us to remain this fallen way forever. No eternity by consumption of the fruit from the tree of life is declared for these fallen and unable people for this fallen and unable race. For this fruit, humanity is designated unable. Article 3 of the third and fourth main point of doctrine continues with the fact that without grace of the regenerating spirit, we are unable to return to God. It sounds like we need help. The psalmist begins to take a little turn in his singing now. All along redemptive history, God has reserved the people unto himself. No, they're not flawless. In fact, we are humbled with the real truth that even in spite of present fallenness and sin that God still wishes to redeem is amazing. Just for example, this Psalm 14 comes with the title to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. We know him to be the man after God's own heart, right? Kids, you know anything about David? Man after God's own heart. What a title. Whose heart was he after when he gazed upon Bathsheba? Because of such treachery, Bathsheba's firstborn dies and war never leaves David's household. But the line of promise remains, which leads us straight to Jesus. Listen to David sing at verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. It is clear that the Holy Spirit is with the psalmist as he writes now for having considered the waywardness of humanity. It is no longer a way of life that he understands. To be with the Lord is far better than to attempt to stand against him. Generation after generation, the Lord God has been patient on the one hand that the iniquity of humanity may be made complete, but on the other hand, that all of God's people predestined for salvation may hear the gospel fully, may repent and believe, and move on into eternity. And the world, fallen world, trembles. There they are, verse 5, in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Verse 6, you shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. God is with the generation of the righteous because they are unable to seek righteousness on their own. And it matters not what has been said against the poor and how they have been counseled by the wicked. The Lord is his refuge. It is because we are unable That God remains remains involved, beloved. It is tragic that we are unable to save ourselves. But thankfully, thankfully, Jesus saves from the unable. And the psalmist cries out, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. 
Is there anything that if it were given to you to do that others perhaps even yourself might think you unfit? Is there anything that upon consideration of it that others or you yourself would be simply unwilling to do? Is there anything considering its complexity or your lack of training or experience that you would consider yourself unable to do? Even volleyball. In other words, when considering any one task, job, or idea, have you ever thought, I probably shouldn't do that, I am not going to do that, I simply cannot do that. For salvation, we are unfit, we are unwilling, we are unable, but the Lord God knows. He knows. He's always known. In a manner of speaking, the Father has asked, who is fit? Who is willing? Who is able to redeem my people? Because they cannot do it on their own. The Son has said, I am fit. I am able. I am willing to redeem your people. The Holy Spirit promised and sent in the name of Jesus Christ, who saves his people from their sins, beloved, makes you fit, makes you willing, makes you able to live in this divine love set aside for you. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. That is, let all of God's children dwell in his love for which in Christ you are well suited. So then turn to him. Recognize your shortcomings, beloved. Mine are many, so are yours. And yet the Lord's love through the person and work of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is making you ready for glory. In his name then, amen.